Welcome to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. In each episode, we sit down with leading experts to talk about dangerous acts, organizations, and people. We examine historical cases, as well as the risks these subjects currently pose. From assassinations and airline shootdowns, through to kidnappings and coups, we'll examine each of these threats through the lenses of both the dangerous actors behind them and the agencies around the world seeking to stop them. In the interest of operational security, certain tactical details will be omitted from these discussions. However, the cases and threats which we discuss here are very real. I'm Lewis H. Passant, the founder and editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica. I'm also a doctoral researcher at the University of Loughborough in the field of intelligence and espionage in the private sector. In my day job, I provide intelligence to corporate executives on complex geopolitical and security issues. So today we're discussing how to hijack a ship. And in a slight break from formatting, uh, rather than having external experts, this time we're using two members of the Encyclopedia Geopolitica team. But nonetheless, they are very credible experts on this topic. Our first expert, Cormac McGarry, is an associate director at the specialist risk consultancy Control Risks, where he heads up their maritime security intelligence and analysis services. Most of his work involves helping shipping companies and others in the maritime community be prepared for security issues they may face from piracy, armed robbery at sea to drug smuggling, war and terrorism. He previously worked at the National Maritime College of Ireland as a research project manager and has also worked across the spectrum of risk management consulting, having worked in East and West Africa and is currently based in France. Our other expert, Anthony Clay, is a former US surface warfare officer serving all over the world with specialties in security and operations. He's currently serving in a civilian role as a strategic planner for the Department of Defense in the US. So we'll start with some intro questions. Cormac, tell us, how did you get into the field of maritime security? This isn't a field many people probably know exists. Well, precisely, a lot of people don't know it exists. And I'm often asked that question, why or what brought me into the field of maritime security? But the rather boring answer to that is similar to a lot of people in any industry around the world. I simply grew up in an area where the maritime industry was extremely visible and played a huge part in the local community's economy and and its its vibrant history. And that, that place was uh, the port of Cork in the, on the southern tip of the Republic of Ireland. So growing up watching ships going past literally my family home brought me to a natural path into my career. And I guess um, coming out of university, literally looking across the water to the National Maritime College of Ireland, it was a natural place to uh, start my professional career. And that kind of combined with um, some experience in the military, it was actually in the field artillery as a reservist, together with an academic background in international relations and an obvious interest in security kind of combining to give me that that uh, pathway into maritime security, which which is, an, is indeed a, a rather peculiar speciality, which I've learned over my career. And Anthony, obviously, being in the Navy, you will have worked and interfaced with the, the maritime security domain very directly. But but tell us about your experiences in, in the maritime security space. 
So as a young officer, you're, you're trained in a wide variety of, of specialties. And I was a surface warfare officer, ship driver. So I found myself in the security world, protecting my own ships for years and years and years. Through the years, I advanced into roles where I was coordinating security, both port security in and around major commercial ports, dealing with commercial ships, U.S. flagged and uh, and otherwise, and then later on actually planning out how other ships and other units would provide security towards these ships. So as today's topic is how to hijack a ship, the first question for Cormac is how do hijackings usually unfold? Is there a particular type of vessel that's most vulnerable to this? You know, we often hear about oil tankers, but why not cruise ship hijackings? You know, when when you mentioned the word hijack in the shipping context, specifically when you mentioned the word piracy, the image that comes into people's heads is that don't work in our sector in the maritime community. The image that comes into people's heads is usually the kind of Jack Sparrow of the Pirates of the Caribbean ilk, which to the frustration of my colleagues is not actually a movie series I've seen. And people often think back to the gilded age of piracy of old. What they tend not to think about is is modern piracy or modern hijackings in the form of terrorism as well. So how do they actually unfold? The kind of standard bearer for that in, in modern maritime security history is the Somali piracy model, which we'll talk about in a second, I guess. But as, as to how they unfold, something that a lot of people have difficulty imagining is just how difficult it is to actually hijack a ship. Um, a lot of people aren't aware of the sheer size of the ships that are sailing on, on our oceans. Uh, just to put into that into context, if you imagine some of the big oil tankers that were hijacked uh, around the Horn of Africa area about 10 years ago, or even just, let's say, the container ship that got stuck in uh, the Suez Canal last year, which which everybody kind of knows popularly. That ship alone is so big that if you were to put all those containers that it was carrying, approximately 20,000, if you were to put them on a train, that train would have to be 75 kilometers long. So imagine hijacking that train. Now imagine doing that on a massive ship, which is basically just a floating building moving between borders on sea. Um, Imagine trying to get on board that ship while it's moving, potentially in rough seas. You don't even have to think of criminality or terrorism to see how difficult that is. Just go to any port in any country and watch the people who work in the port, specifically pilots uh, who, who tend to board commercial ships to help them navigate through ports. Just see how difficult it is for those very, very well-trained experts to just get on a ladder and get on board that ship. Now, try and do that when the ship is actively resisting or when there's naval forces deployed in the area to actively try and stop you. It takes a very, very high degree of capability to actually hijack a ship, which is one of the reasons it doesn't happen that often relative to other kind of global crimes. When we talk about hijacking of a ship in terms of the intent and capabilities of a group, one of the kind of textbook cases, one of the famous cases in the maritime security world was the, the hijacking of the Achille Loro in Egypt in 1985. And that was a case of terrorism in which um, four members of the Palestinian Liberation, Liberation Front, uh, led by a man called Abu Abbas, uh, managed to hijack a cruise ship, a relatively small cruise ship, so, so not the size of the, the modern super cruise ships that we're now used to, 
they hijacked the ship uh, primarily for the purposes of seeking the release of 50 prisoners that were largely being held in Israel. How did they hijack that ship? It wasn't as complicated as you might think. They essentially got on board, managed to hide their weapons, um, got on board posing as passengers. And that was before a, a certain code of international security was introduced uh, much more recently in, uh, in 2004. Fast forward to uh, more recently, and we talk about Somali piracy quite a lot in, in our field. Somali pirates, they, they went to sea largely around the year 2009 is, is when they started reaching their peak. They went out to sea to hijack ships. What was driving them there was a lot of issues around illegal fishing that was happening in their waters, uh, weak institutions on land in Somalia that were failing to enforce the law, uh, economic and socioeconomic degradation that was that was pushing these fishermen out to, out to sea towards criminality as well, an abundance of weapons, and the expertise to actually go out to sea and do that very difficult thing that I was that I was talking about. Somali pirates established a whole model of how to hijack a ship. And in short, what they would do is they would often go out with what we would call a mothership, which would be a relatively big boat, usually a, a dhow, which is a, a traditional kind of Middle Eastern boat uh, designed for carrying smaller quantities of cargo. That dhow would carry the fuel, would carry weapons, ammunition, various other support material that would then, then be able to feed two faster boats um, that would approach a large ship. And as they approached the large ship, they would usually use long ladders or grapple hooks to get themselves onto the deck of the ship. And again, in some cases, you got to remember here that these ships, they're sailing sometimes pretty fast. Once they realize that as pirates on approach, they will increase speed. The swell on the sea could be pretty big. And these pirate groups are trying to keep alongside the ship itself, which is pretty difficult, then trying to launch a ladder or a grapple hook over the edge, then trying to climb up that rope or ladder. And then once they're on board, they would, well, they would usually have two speedboats with multiple personnel on each, each speedboat. And then once they're on board, they would seek to get up to the bridge of the ship and effectively try and take control of the ship by threatening the, the officers on, on board. There's a whole system of security measures that these ships would often employ against them, which we can talk about later. But once they get control of that ship, effectively, they would force the officers on board to sail the ship back towards Somalia itself. And, and from there, they would be able to negotiate the release of the ship, the cargo and the crew itself. And they got pretty good at that. And there was fundamentally no real defense measures out there, primarily in the Gulf of Aden area, which which allowed Somali piracy to really proliferate. And they, they really established that kind of standard bearer of, of how to hijack a ship. Now, as to the question, what types of ships? Uh, you said you, we often hear about oil tankers. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because the Gulf of Aden and broader Indian Ocean region where Somali pirates were were practicing. Obviously, that that's you know it's at the exit point of the the Gulf where uh, Middle Eastern oil and gas is flowing out of. So a lot of the most valuable ships sailing in that area would be tankers laden with oil product. And Somali pirate groups actually got to a point where they knew that they could hijack vessels that were sailing westwards, 
knowing that these would be tankers that would be actually laden with fuel, which means that they would be slower. It also means that they would sit lower in the water, so it would be easier to get on board them in terms of the height between the water and the deck. And of course, they would have a much more valuable cargo on board, which would um, make the financial reward for their crime more appealing. Um, But it wasn't just tankers, it was vessels of all types. And in other areas of the world where we see criminal hijackings, um, you do tend to see multiple vessel types being targeted, but often it is oil tankers because of that cargo, which can either be negotiated for its release or it can be sold off into the black market, which is what we uh, saw a lot of in the Southeast Asia region, specifically in the South China Sea, where hijacking was a big problem really up until about three years ago. So you've described really quite a difficult engagement here attacking a ship. So I suppose the question I would have is your money might not be enough to motivate all these types of attackers. So Anthony, question for you is what motivations would someone have to attack a ship beyond money? Clearly, money is the primary factor in most of these situations, and it's varying degrees of money. So in the Somali pirates, there's a large history of you know, the local warlords that control the pirates themselves, you know, basically take a, you know, take a large share out of that and keep the pirates as sort of indentured servants until they pay off debts. In the other parts of the world, it's a little different from that. There's a lot more of a commercial aspect to the piracy where it's organized gangs similar to the drug trade where they will go and they will take ships and they will either break apart the cargo and sell it piecemeal or negotiate to return the ship to the shipping company. One of the more interesting sides of that too is they also get into some of the illicit trades that happen at sea too. In the case of the Somali pirates, they're frequently... Not frequently, that's that's not a fair characterization. But there is a weapons trade that goes from different sources around the uh, around the world to Yemen to support the Houthi revolution. And they will occasionally stumble into ships that have weapons on board or drugs. There's a large drug trade through there. So they can turn these around and sell them on to other customers, terrorist customers. Anthony, you mentioned you know this being a frequent problem. So I suppose to Cormac, my question is, how, how frequent exactly are hijackings and attacks on ships? How often is this happening? It ebbs and it flows. One of the things when we talk about maritime security risk, we, we do have to think about it at a global level because of the nature of the maritime sector. It, it, it is by its very nature global. A shipping company doesn't have to worry about one specific area. There's very few international shipping companies that only work in one area. Uh, most shipping companies are sending their their fleet in and out of every country you can imagine. So to answer the question, how frequent are hijackings specifically right now in the last, let's say, three years? Almost zero, actually. Particularly with Somali piracy, that reached its peak between 2009 and 2012. And there is a bulwark of security measures in place to keep it suppressed. And that system of security measures have been very, very successful. To the point that since 2012, Somali piracy has been very effectively suppressed and its frequency almost zero. There have been moments, particularly of note in 2017, there was a slight resurgence of Somali piracy, but it was nothing compared to their heyday of 2009 to 12. In those years of Somali piracy's heyday, at the height of their uh, success, At any one time, they were holding over 500 mariners in captivity. And while 
you know, this threat was made popular in in the popular mind by movies like Captain Phillips, for example. If you just think about 500 mariners being held captive and how actually ignored that problem was by most of the world, just think how would we talk about 500 airline pilots being held captive in some place? You know, it's kind of a result of something that in the maritime community we call sea blindness, where the vast majority of the public are just very unaware of what's happening in the maritime community, even when there are massive issues like this. And at that height of Somali piracy, it was actually costing the maritime industry. Well, the maritime community was costing about $2 billion a year to fight piracy and keep it suppressed. That figure comes from a, a, a very um, great group of people that were called Oceans Beyond Piracy, which annually published reports on the cost of piracy. And it's an astonishing cost, $2 billion, which which does include the commercial cost as well as the cost of, of, of naval response. But fortunately, those measures are in place and they have actively very suppressed Somali piracy. The same can be said uh, roughly of uh, some of the other high-risk areas for criminal hijackings, like in the South China Sea. A lot of good efforts uh, from international maritime authorities, agencies, as well as national agencies uh, very successfully suppressed a lot of the hijacking issues in, in Southeast Asia. But to broader question here beyond hijacking, Security risk in the shipping world goes way beyond hijacking. And, and what actually worries most security professionals in the shipping world on a day-to-day basis is the more common occurrences of things like stowaways, which is when someone just manages to get on board your ship in order to move across borders illegally. They can have a massive cost on the ship owner who has to deal with potentially turning the ship around, which can cost hundreds of thousands a day in terms of the hiring cost of the vessel in terms of fuel, labor costs for the crew, etc. Stowaways are actually a day-to-day, very real major risk in the maritime community that those outside the maritime community very rarely speak about. There's also issues like theft and robbery, which are much more kind of lower key. They involve things like just stealing items from ships, like rope to paint cans is something I see on an almost daily basis. And these attacks do happen. I call them attacks, but things like robberies and thefts. They do happen on a daily basis. You know, at Control Risks, we record roughly 500 incidents a year of this type that affect ships. The vast majority of them are things like those thefts uh, and robberies on ships in in ports and anchorages around the world. And then there's the more high-impact attacks. And these are the ones we do here in the media. You know, they're relatively infrequent compared to those low-impact events like thefts. But we are talking about things like, for example, most listeners will, will probably have heard of the attacks that happened in 2019 off the uh, port of Fujairah in the United Arab Emirates, where four internationally flagged tankers were at anchor, you know, just resting at anchor and were subject to explosions rather suddenly. And what happened to those tankers is very, very likely there was limpet mines placed on them that were detonated. And the intent behind that is very, very geopolitical. That's where that gets really interesting for Encyclopedia Geopolitica. Those four tankers and a number of other tankers that were attacked after those events in May 2019, there have been a number since in in the area, roughly around the Strait of Hormuz, that, that rough area, they have been heavily linked to geopolitics surrounding Iran, 
and its adversarial relationships with the United States and the U.S.'s Gulf Arab allies. And most recently, Iran's relationship with Israel has seen multiple commercial ships being subject to attack on the high seas. So, you know, these go on and they don't really impact your average person on a day-to-day basis, but they just show us that there are actors out there with the intent to attack ships, often to such an extent that they don't actually want to cause widespread damage in the case of those tankers being attacked around the Strait of Hormuz and, and, and Gulf of Amman area. A lot of the the intent behind those attacks was to seek limited damage for geopolitical means rather than, for example, to shut down the Strait of Hormuz completely, which would have which would have been an absolutely devastating international incident. I'd like to add a little bit on that with regards to the uh, the ships near Fajara in the United Arab Emirates. So I happen to be fairly closely involved with that at the time. And while it was initially perceived as some sort of a piracy level thing, that was straight geopolitics between Iran and the United States. The United States uses Fujara as a port for resupply. And it was a it was a message that, you know, that Iran could have some degree of say in our area. And so it kind of brings about like whereas terrorism is typically politically driven and can have economic side effects to it. On the piracy side, it's much more economically driven with the possibility of having political side effects. State-sponsored piracy is definitely a historical thing with a lot of discussion actually happening right now with regards to the conflict in Ukraine with Russia possibly uh, using some pirate-type tactics towards grain supplies coming out of Ukraine and you know the international community supporting things like blocking Russian shipping from conducting trade as well. So it's a, it's kind of a, a weird crossover between politics, terrorism, and economics. That's really interesting. And I, I especially want to come back to this idea of sea blindness. You know, I think you've both given us a lot to think about, about the, the scale and impact of these types of threats. But before we do that, I just have to ask, you know, Anthony, given that you've operated in this part of the world and, you know, this is a kind of gray zone tactic we've seen actors such as Iran employ. You know, given that modern computer systems manage so many aspects of a ship's operations, how vulnerable are they to, you know, potentially hacking a steering or navigation system? You know, a cyber attack's an issue. Could you, could you hijack a vessel from the other side of the world and, and make it run aground? In our modern world where we assure are used to highly connected lives, where we are on systems with our own personal computers that dial into our corporate systems and you can have a really networked, a really easy entry into a large scale network through a very small node, being a personal computer, a cell phone, what have you. It's a little different with most ships. Granted, in the mainline commercial world, most of their ships are between, you know, two and about 10 years to 15 years old. And then they always want to increase, and you're talking about Evergreen and Maersk, and but the the large scale large scale shipping companies, they want to increase their size, increase their speed, increase their efficiency. Well, when those ships move on, they go to smaller shipping companies, and it's kind of like the trade of a used car. You know, you have your first shiny one, and it gets passed on to a good second user, and by you know a couple of years on, it's with a 18-year-old kid who barely knows how to drive. That's kind of how these ships are as well. And the lower tier ones 
are the ones that are usually higher priority for hijacking or piracy because they're smaller, they're slower, they have poor built-in defenses, so they're easier targets. In the case of the computer side of things, those ships are also relatively immune. They don't necessarily have a integrated system for driving the ship that connects the navigation to the steering to the engines. In newer ships, they do have that in most cases. Most of these newer ships, you drive from a console that's a joystick, and most of the time you just press a button and the whole thing does it for you, and you don't have to touch the ship's wheel or the throttles to go anywhere. It just drives you there, and then you only take control when you're in a congested environment coming into or out of report. That said, those are typically not integrated onto the broader computer computer systems, which are connected to the internet. Most of these modern ships do have internet connections. They go through satellites, and it's not the best internet connection in the world, but it's there. But those are typically on isolated systems that are firewalled from the navigation system. I guess it's more the other way. The navigation systems, the engineering systems, the firefighting systems are all separate and contained on a standalone network that doesn't typically have reach back to the internet. So getting a way to hack into these requires a multi-level step. It has been tested before. It has been successfully done before. Typically, it requires somebody on the ship to be able to install something into the operating system that itself gains internet connectivity. On the on the technical side of that, the, the new build ships, as Anthony was saying, are being built with kind of more modern navigation equipment. One of the areas that we see the cyber world impacting shipping, we we don't really see it have a, a massive impact in terms of you know breaking a ship up or sinking a ship or devastating supply chains, etc. We do see quite commonly something that's called AIS spoofing. AIS is the automatic identification system, which uh, in short is a kind of transponder system that ships are obliged to carry. They're open source software. It's freely accessible for most people to just Google the name of a ship and kind of see where it is in the world. And something that's happened over the last decade or so is, is people just being able to spoof where those AIS locations are. And some of the more kind of comical ones is you can go to some of these marine traffic websites where, you, you know, they'll see that they've arranged the ship positions into a word that says pwned or something like that. It's largely kind of comical, um, but what is the real world impact of that is that a crew on a ship, a, ca- a capable crew on a ship you know, if their AIS position is being spoofed outward, outwardly, a capable crew can usually kind of adjust to that. Where it gets really kind of threatening is is when a cyber threat actor starts messing with GPS. Um, there's multiple ways to do that. One of the easiest ways is, is simply to block GPS signals. But there have been some cases where GPS itself gets spoofed and you have a, a system on the bridge, which is kind of modern electronic chart display information systems where the crew on the bridge of a ship might see on their chart that they're in one place, but effectively they're being GPS spoofed to to make it appear that they're in one place when really they're in another. That presents kind of navigational risks, you know, 
it means that the ship has a higher risk of running into another ship or running aground. Again, you know, a capable crew will often spot this and, and be able to go back to the old ways of sailing to, to work their way around it. Uh, where it gets to an even deeper level is where we see cyber threat actors messing with something called dynamic GPS. And that's where they can start messing with propulsion controls and start actively messing with the actual navigation of the vessel, which it's it's relatively rare. rare. I, I, in the commercial world, I, I don't personally hear about it that much, but it's very, very heavily linked to geopolitics again. It's, and we do see it in areas where you have geopolitical flashpoints. And of no surprise, we see it in the Black Sea. We saw it in the Black Sea for quite a long time before February 2022. There's reports that this is happening in the Taiwan Strait. There's also um, a lot of reports over the years that this kind of cyber interference was happening to ships around the Scandinavian borders in the Arctic, the Scandinavian Arctic borders with Russia, etc. And they tend to be very, very geopolitical in nature. Uh, where, the, where the fear comes in in the commercial world is whether you could use these means to, to let's say, get multiple ships in a place like the English Strait or the Suez Canal to fool them into thinking they're in one place when they're actually in another, and then they start crashing into each other, and suddenly you, sh- you shut down global supply chain choke point or bottleneck. Or if if you can mess with the ship's ballast management and you make the ship think that its ballast is on one side or another, and you could theoretically kind of crack a ship in half, that's where you, you get into the kind of serious physical risk of, of cyber interference. It's probably something we're going to see more of, you know, as ships continue to modernize. And it, it, it's certainly something that the shipping community and the international shipping agencies are taking very seriously. So before we take a break and, and then go on to talk about how we protect against these kind of risks, you know, you talked about sea blindness before. And given so much of the world's trade flows through shipping and you know, we're all seeing the impacts at the moment of, of breakdowns in global supply chains, what, what sort of risks exist? that could be disrupted through this system or could disrupt the system through individual vessel hijackings. Just to elaborate on that term, sea blindness is, you know, one of the statistics you'll often hear from from us in the maritime community is is that between 80 and 90% of everything you consume, that means, you know, the milk and cereal you had for breakfast, the avocado you had for lunch, the computer screen you're looking at right now, the audio device that you're listening to this podcast on, at some point that was almost guaranteed to be on a ship. Our modern supply chains, our ability to just have things is completely reliant on international shipping to do that the way it does. For us to be able to do things as cheap as we do, to get things done as quick as we do, we're wholly dependent on international shipping for that. Now, you could also say that, you know, 90% of everything you consume was also on a truck to get to you in in that last mile of the supply chain, which is very, very true. We we totally rely on on road traffic. But the thing is, think think of all the electronics around you right now. You know, we're we're all sat uh, relatively in Europe, I think. But, you know, all those electronics, most of them didn't come from here. They probably came from China. You know, a truck is not going to be able to get that stuff from China to here. Uh, you need a ship to do that. The avocados from South America and Central America, they're not coming on a truck. They're not coming on an, on a railway. They're not. They're certainly not coming on through aviation where it would just cost way, way, way too much. They're, they're coming to us on ships. And the kind of lack of knowledge around that is what we call sea blindness. And in the security sense, that means people being very unaware of the vulnerabilities in, in that system then. 
So to your question, like what are the risks that could disrupt the system beyond individual hijackings? There's many scenarios. There's issues like Somali piracy becoming as endemic as it did, threatening supply chains through the Gulf of Aden, which it very much did, required massive international response, massive response from commercial shipping as well as international naval forces, international, um, the international governmental community, Somalia itself. The risks that could disrupt the system is an, an endemic security threat like that re-emerging, uh, whether it's off Somalia or somewhere else in the world. We have had a more modern problem like that, for example, in the Gulf of Guinea, which is a threat very specifically to West African supply chains, not so much globally. Beyond individual kind of criminal financially driven hijackings, you can kind of take the impact of those risks, take that back into the terrorist world. If you imagine, let's say, the Suez Canal blockage last year, one mega ship, a gigantic container ship carrying 20,000 containers, accidentally got stuck throughout the world it created some funny memes but we are literally paying for the impact of that ship getting stuck right now it's not the cause of inflationary problems right now that we have but it is one of a sequence of issues largely happening in the maritime world that have led to the record levels of inflation we have right now what is commonly called the cost of living crisis in much of the world right now you had the blockage of the Suez Canal. You also had China's response to zero COVID. It's zero COVID policy response, um, which resulted in parts of some of its megaports getting shut down. They never actually shut down their megaports. They just impacted some of the labor in some parts of those megaports. And a number of those happening, plus the blockage of the Suez Canal, plus a bunch of other less heard of issues have resulted in this very global problem. And again, the food crisis right now, um, largely stemming from Russia and Ukraine, that is a shipping problem. Unable to get ships out of Ukraine via the Black Sea, that is a shipping problem. So again, if if you extend that to think of risks to the system, what if bad actors get their hands on the intent and capability to create these disruptions? So what if instead of the Suez Canal blockage being an accident, you actually see multiple vessels being hit by a threat actor? That becomes a different issue to deal with. It could have a bigger impact. Going back to that cyber question, what if some of these mega ports such as Shanghai in China or Rotterdam in Europe, what if they're hit by a very devastating cyber event that effectively effectively shuts them down. So those are the kind of more systemic risks that can manifest from risks within the maritime sector. I want to dovetail on what that that last point right there, and kind of linking back to the the previous question is: I think the bigger threat to maritime trade when it comes to affecting flow from ships to the consumer is actually the port. So. In the case of these major ports, most of them are very heavily automated with you know humans doing a very small amount of the work that's done to offload and move this cargo from the ship to a truck to get to the, the end user. And those are highly networked. And those are the ones where they're the critical node that is easily tacked in a cyber environment. That, I think, is the the critical thing that could sever maritime trade. But it's not just that. I mean, the 
ports are a system of systems. You have people and trade unions and the vessel control systems, which are, you know, manage who comes in and out of when. Most people are more familiar with air traffic control. That exists in a very computerized form for ports coming in. A ship at sea is relatively safe, and you can always take over the controls and drive it. A competent mariner is not going to run his ship into another ship. It happens, but it's not a. It's it's usually a case of a whole bunch of failures stacked in a row. A sailor is not going to let their ship be driven by a computer into another ship or the ground, typically. But if they can't get into a port, if there is no window for them to pull in, if the scheduling for the tugs doesn't happen, then nothing happens. That ship doesn't get in. This stuff doesn't get offloaded. The avocados coming from Mexico spoil in the container. And that is where, when you start looking at how many systems are required that do rely on computers, that do rely on uh, human networks and you know, cell phone networks and all of these other things, those are the nodes that can break all of this in a very short time. So you've both given us a, a number of very high profile threats we need to think about here. And it's very clear there are systemic threats that need to be accounted for. So after the break, we'll talk a little bit about how we counter those threats. How do we keep shipping safe? How do ships stay safe? How do we keep the avocados flowing? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You have been listening to How to Get on a Watch List, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. If you like this show, don't forget to check out our other content at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, which you can find by going to howtogetonawatchlist.com, where you can find our analysis on various geopolitical issues, as well as reading lists covering topics like those discussed in the podcast. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, as well as rating us five stars if you enjoyed the discussion. So before the break, we talked about this being a pretty significant risk to to just the global economy, to geopolitics in general. So now let's spend a bit of time to talk about how we can protect against these threats. How can we mitigate them? So I think the the really obvious question here is, Cormac, do do shipping companies think about these sorts of threats? I'm I'm guessing going by your job that, that this is something they do discuss and that they do take seriously. Like any sector or industry, you have a spectrum of companies and their relationship to risk management. You do, of course, have companies who send their crews pretty blindly into high risk and don't do anything about it. At the other end of the spectrum, you have shipping companies who go above and beyond and protect their crews and protect their cargoes, protect their clients. And regarding hijacking specifically, there is actually a very, very effective system of measures that an individual ship can take to protect itself against something like a Somali pirate group, for example. It's a very proven set of security measures that were kind of constructed by the shipping industry and the maritime community itself. 
those measures are deployed on a daily basis, particularly in areas like the Gulf of Guinea, off West Africa, and, and uh, the Horn of Africa area around the Indian Ocean. You know, one thing that the shipping industry is very notable for is it has a very high risk tolerance compared to many other sectors. You will always find a shipping company, you will always find a ship, you will always find a crew willing to go into an area as long as trade is to be done. And in terms of that risk aversion, just remember that the people at sea on those ships just think about what they do day to day. You know, we're sat here on our desks worried about air conditioning, probably, during a a heat wave in France. The people that are bringing these supplies to us on their ships day to day, they are facing hurricane force winds, massive swells. Their desks and their, their beds are being turned upside down, literally sometimes, by the weather they face. They are subject to a huge range of accidents on these ships. Just think about the building, your office where you work now. Imagine if that was tumbling around all the time. So the individual mariners day to day, they're used to risk, primarily safety risks. So that kind of feeds up to the corporate level when companies are willing or deciding whether whether to send their ship into a high risk area. They also have this kind of extraordinary risk tolerance, and which is a good thing because if they didn't have it, it would really reduce the opportunity opportunities for trade we have in the world. Brilliant example of that very presently is the Black Sea itself, where the conflict between Russia and Ukraine effectively shut down shipping out of Ukraine. Now, that wasn't for want of ships willing to go into Ukraine. That was because the conflict situation effectively shut down those ports. Ukraine literally made the decision to shut down its ports in the Gulf of Odessa. So in effect, there was actually nothing for the ships to trade. And then around July, August 2022, as a result of quite tense geopolitical diplomatic uh, negotiations that involved Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and international agencies, uh, maritime agencies, um, there is now a system in place as of August 2022 where ships can go into those Ukrainian ports in the Gulf of Odessa and take advantage of a system that is kind of known as the humanitarian grain corridor. I won't go into the details of that system, but you know, ships doing that are still engaging in, in pretty high risk. The agreement under which those ships are now going into Ukraine, and they are going in there successfully, that agreement is is very much subject to the trajectory of the conflict in Ukraine. So those ships are, make no doubt about it, they're engaging in, in pretty high security risk, but they're still doing it. And they take that decision because trade is to be done. Now, those ships, do they go in there with any actual knowledge of the risk they're facing? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. If they know about the risks they're facing, they'll often have quite qualified security managers or they, they'll engage in external consultancy to help them deal with that risk. Another good example is going back a bit further into history during the Iran-Iraq war. An element of that became known as the tanker war, where both countries were kind of targeting commercial fleets and targeting oil and gas coming out of the Gulf through the Strait of Hormuz. Upwards, um, I may get this number wrong, but I think somewhere around between 25 and 35 tankers, commercial tankers, were hit by missiles at that time. But the shipping industry just continued trading. It just shows the level of risk tolerance that they have. But there's also so many examples of how the shipping industry and community 
still actually takes those risks very, very seriously. Because if indeed they didn't, they would not have business to do and us as consumers would start to suffer. Let's talk about practicalities then. You know, it's very clear that, that these these risks are still being broached by these by these shipping companies. So Anthony, let's talk about the sort of security ships have. What can a ship do if it finds itself under attack by hijackers or another actor? So this has been a regular level of increase of capability through the commercial sector for the last decade or so, since it really started getting bad in 2007, 2008. Initially, there was some really rudimentary, like putting barbed wire on you know, the rails as they're going through high threat environments. They're manning fire hoses. Fire hoses actually work pretty well if you're trying to climb up a ladder or a rope to board a ship. Being sprayed by a fire hose makes it very difficult. Those are still used, you know, the actual physical restraints there, but it's become a lot, a lot more programmatic from the get-go. So there are training that ships go through prior to going through high-threat areas. So they will learn maneuvers, they will learn techniques, and then when they're going through the areas, they will transit at basically the best speed they can make, the fastest they can go. It's harder to reach a moving target. You know, these the boats, particularly we're talking Somali pirates here, they use... 30 to 40 foot skiffs that move very quickly, but they're not great in heavy seas. These big 300,000 ton ships that they're trying to board can go in any and all seas, however fast they want to go. So speed is their friend. Additionally, if they're engaged by pirates, they can maneuver. And so they will do uh, big S-turns. So again, it's not necessarily like to avoid it like you think avoiding road hazards in your car. Because when you start putting a rudder over on these ships, you slow way down. What it does do, though, is it creates big wakes and large waves for these little boats to have to deal with. And again, hitting that moving target as they're going through the sea to try and get a ladder up to climb up. So it makes, just makes it more difficult. On top of that, there's a security forces that have come into play here. So companies will hire private security companies, kind of think Blackwater sort of thing, but not quite as much baggage. But they will come out with their own weapons, their guns and ammo, and they will set up emplacements around the ship and provide their own defense. And, you know, in the same way that most warships do the same thing as they're going through high threat areas as well. So manning up with 50 caliber machine guns and the like. And then, of course, in the case of the Horn of Africa, the Somali pirate threat, you also have a significant military presence. So you have Task Force 151, which is run by the Combined Maritime Force, which is a organization of a variety of militaries, including a bunch of the Gulf states, United States, UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and sometimes France plays, sometimes Egypt plays, and a bunch of other countries that I didn't name will send ships, a single ship or a couple of staff officers, and they coordinate a bunch of the response to piracy there. Interestingly, separately and kind of alongside, China has over the last decade routinely sent ships to conduct counter piracy missions in that area, kind of working parallel. And so there's a, a bit of a working together while working separately relationship between the combined maritime force and the Chinese that are there with usually one or two ships. So 
in the case of when they find themselves under attack, what they do is it's a process where they will make reports usually to their own company. They will make a report to whatever local authorities there are nearby and they can start their evasive actions. Assuming everything doesn't go according to plan, goes awry, they also have the ability to basically withdraw to a central spot that is protected, commonly called the Citadel. And so they can still operate the ship just with routine or with less capability, less ability to see outside clearly and you know less specific controls, but they can still do a lot of the operation while they're in a heavily fortified space on the ship. Most ships keep their engine rooms locked, even if it's just a, a padlock. So it allows them to keep a, a bit of physical security in between them and the attacker. But all of those calls and trying to get response forces from wherever they might be coming from gives them just a little bit more protection, allowing that response time. So say a ship was attacked and boarded in international waters, a scenario that our, our researchers for this episode have insisted we refer to as die hard at sea. What sort of response would we expect to see from the international community, especially given the, the overlapping jurisdictions at play? You know, We've got ships flying flags of convenience. We've got owners in one country, potentially passengers and crew from another nationality. Does everyone just sit back and wait for the US Navy SEALs or the British SBS? How, how does that response work? So it's really, really case dependent based on, like you said, the flag, whether it's a real flag or a flag of convenience, just for a little definition's sake, for, for people that don't maybe know, a flag of convenience is where a company is headquartered in one country, but due to taxes and regulations and things like that, they go to another country where they can register their ship and it's a whole lot cheaper and don't have to meet so many requirements. So places like Panama and Liberia are two of the, the biggest ones. And so you'll have a lot of ships that are, that are flagged by those countries and a few others. So in those cases, it's definitely a little bit more squishy, technical term. So with the a U.S. flagged ship, if, that, if one of those gets taken over, you know, the cavalry's coming or the Navy in this case. So there will be a response from U.S. military assets. They will probably bring something like SEALs to, to do a boarding and to retake the ship back over. In a the case of a more conventional commercial ship, it's really dependent on where they're at in the world and what forces are there to respond. So if they're off the Horn of Africa, they have CTF-151 who can respond, and there are ships there that will respond. In the case of a lot of other places that might be local authorities. So in the Strait of uh, Straits of Malacca, it could be Singapore or Malaysia that responds. If there is a U.S. person on board or a British person on board or a French person on board, typically those countries will send responses to be able to go and do whatever is necessary to ensure their freedom. But there is no real standard. This is how you respond in case of X do Y. If I can jump in on that to completely agree with Anthony, it, it's very, very much case by case, very much dependent on all, all those details and characteristics of a specific vessel. Two very contrasting case studies 
one that's much more recent within the last two or three years was the vessel Nave Andromeda. She was a Liberian flagged ship that was boarded by the British SBS in the English Strait. She was due to call into an English port. And the the headlines of the day were that the SBS you know, intercepted a hijacked ship, etc. In actual fact, what had happened on the ship was that a small number of Nigerian stowaways had gotten bored. So, you know, terming them hijackers, even though technically what they did was actually a hijack, they did, uh, you know, start threatening the crew and if, if kind of effectively got control of the vessel. It would be a long shot to call them hijackers in the sense that we talk about Somali pirates, for example. But that was a quite a clear-cut case that when she was coming in towards English waters, the British government responded, sent the SBS in, dealt with the situation like the SBS does, and that was that. What was the fate of the Nigerian stowaways? That's where it can get complicated because do they get prosecuted in a British court? Do they get immediately deported? Are they treated as immigrants? Or are they treated as refugees? That, that, that's a whole other question. Another far more complicated example is, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I, I mentioned the Achille Loro vessel that was hijacked in Egypt in 1985. Again, that was Palestinian Liberation Front hijacked the ship amongst other reasons, to get some prisoners released. During the episode, they executed an American citizen who happened to be Jewish, who horribly was executed on the deck while in his wheelchair. And the hijackers demanded that the ship be sailed to Syria. Syria rejected their request, so they were kind of stuck in limbo. They ended up going back into Egypt. Eventually, the hijackers kind of disappeared and got lost, but the United States, having had an American citizen just executed, they managed to intercept a commercial airline that was carrying the hijackers and managed to intercept it with some fighter jets and force it to land in Italy. Why Italy? Because that's where the US had a NATO, I believe it was a naval base, maybe an Air Force base. When they landed in Italy to deal with these hijackers, an important thing to remember is that the Achille Laura was an Italian flagged ship, so Italy claimed its own jurisdiction over the crime that happened on the ship. Israel were claim, trying to claim some extradition because it was a Jewish person that was executed. The United States were obviously intervening because it was a US citizen and it was an international terrorist incident. When they actually landed the plane in Italy, the um, US uh, special forces that had succeeded in this ended up having a standoff with Italian forces because Italy was trying to claim that it had jurisdiction over that base and the criminals. And it resulted in a diplomatic crisis called this, called this uh, I think it's the Sigonella crisis, which I'd implore anyone to Google. It's, a, it's quite a long read. It's a very interesting case about the complexity of dealing with crime at sea. Now, in the case of most modern pirates that are captured, it's a very different story. It's actually Similarly convoluted, though not quite as geopolitically sexy. So for most of the pirates that are picked up off the coast of Somalia, they are taken to Kenya for trial. Now, there's some degree of uncertainty as to how rigorous these trials are, or if they happen, or if they just go immediately back to Somalia to, to start piracy again. There's a lot of, a lot of question there. In the case of the ships that have been taken prisoner that the U.S. has a lot of interest in, the U.S. government will take these prisoners back to the U.S. and they will be 
tried in court there, and then they'll go spend years and years and years in prison in the U.S. Another weird aside is that this is still piracy, and it does still fall under the law of the sea. So if you are found to be a pirate, you can be executed on site. And there are stories, particularly of different militaries around the world, who I will not name, of picking up pirates off the coast of Horn of Africa, taking them to the stern of the ship and putting a bullet in their head and throwing them over the side. So the penalties for piracy can be very significant to those conducting it. Not always the case. Sometimes they will just go to jail for a couple of years. Sometimes they'll be let free, but sometimes, you know, it's a watery grave. <laughs> so that brings us on to our, our final question here. You know, you've given us a, a lot to think about in terms of risks here. And I, I have to ask, you know, as people who think about these risks all day long, what, what's something that keeps someone like you up at night? You know, there's, there's a lot of vulnerabilities in the maritime world, in the shipping sector, which I think would be wrong of us to talk openly about here. But in more general terms, something that I do worry about is, is a threat actor gaining both the intent and capability to attack a global maritime choke point somewhere like the Malacca Strait, Suez Canal, English Strait, and the various methods that can be employed to interrupt traffic there for a period of time could do great damage to our global economy. We've seen it happen through accidents in the past year. My fear is that a threat actor would do it intentionally to more than one vessel at a time. I think my biggest worries are something that I already talked about is actually not related to the ships themselves, but the ports. The workers, the stevedores, the dock workers are all typically lower class people that don't necessarily have the highest security screenings. They are cheap labor. Typically, they are poorly educated and they're not under the control of the Shipping companies, they're more under control of the port themselves. And, you know, if you're talking about a port like Dubai or Shanghai or Bremerhaven, they're going to be a consistently high caliber there or a decently high caliber. But if you're talking about a lot of the smaller ports, particularly in think places like the Gulf of Guinea, which we talked about earlier, or throughout Southeast Asia, you know, they're not going to be the most rigorously screened and they're going to be much more open to exploitation by state and non-state actors. And that is where I see the biggest threat is coming either onto the ship that way via stowaways or sabotage, or just thwarting the entire port's ability to do trade. Well, gentlemen, you've given us a lot to think about here, so all that's left to say is thank you very much for joining us. To our audience, you've been listening to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. Today we've been talking about how to hijack a ship. Our producer for this episode was Edwin Tran, and our researcher was Alex Smith. Thank you very much. Encyclopedia Geopolitica is also now on Patreon for people who would like to contribute to the production of our podcast, articles, and reading lists. For those who want access to our special patron perks, as well as the satisfaction of supporting our work, head over to www.patreon.com slash encyclopediageopolitica. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.